Nevis Nevis for the devil. Hello, and welcome to the Never Heard of It podcast. I'm Craig Moorhead, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and co-conspirator. That's I assume you're talking about me, um, Sean Harwell. Welcome, mm-hmm. everyone. This is the podcast where we talk about the movies that have fallen through our cracks. And we have an extra crack with us today who we'll get to in a second. But mm-hmm. uh, first, why don't you come find us online? We're at NeverHeardPodcast.com. You can find links to all our social sites there. But we're on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, etc. And always, uh, you can listen on iTunes, subscribe, and uh, everywhere you get podcasts. Reviews are nice, uh, but not necessary. Subscriptions are nice, too. How you doing today, Sean? I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty Irish today, Craig. How about you? I am. I'm feeling the Blarney. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's not even St. Patrick's Day. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Uh, no, not at all. All right. Now that we've been as casually racist toward the Irish as possible. Yeah, let's just ju- jump into it. So today our guest is Jason Barker, an exhibitionist from the Chapel Hill area. Jason, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Yeah. I don't see how it could possibly be misconstrued as anything else. Yeah, clearly Jason works for a movie theater. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Movie, movie, motion picture exhibition. I, I feel like that was very clear. If your mind's in the gutter. Jason, uh, we, we, uh, Sean and I both went to school with you. I don't know if you went to school with us. How has your life changed since that time? It, it, it has changed plenty. Thank you for asking. Um, now, that's, one sentence is fine. One sentence is fine. Now, let's get down into the nitty-gritty details. <laughs> okay. Jesus. Please, let's do that. Sorry. Yeah, so Jason, you're in the, the, the motion picture exhibition business right now, day to day. Movies, how long uh, have they been a driving force in your life and, and, and how did they become so? I'd say that they've been a driving force in my life since I was very, very young, since I first watched them. I think I first saw Pete's Dragon in the theater. That was one of my first movies ever. Nice. And... They've really played a large part in my life ever since then. So that would that's kind of the movie that kicked it all off for you. This is the original Pete's Dragon, not the one that came out last year. <laughs> oh my god. So it's been much longer than pretty young. at all. You're right. I'm yeah. wondering if there was a certain point in your life, Jason, where you realized, you know, I probably like these things a little more than the next guy, maybe even to an unhealthy degree. Pete's Dragon is one thing, but I know you. I know you're a musical fan. I know you love like Sam Raimi. I remember from film school specifically. Um, when did you sort of like become aware of maybe some stuff that was a little off the you know the beaten path as far as film is concerned? Probably in middle school when everybody was spending their time reading comics and doing productive things, and I was making home <laughs> video movies with my fr- best friend. Nice. Yeah. Describe now, one of those movies. Thank you. Yes. In detail. <laughs> um, well, we would I'm do Indiana that. Jones stunt spectaculars. Um, yes. We would Brilliant. make a dummy out of my best friend Ed and do horrible, <laughs> well, horrible hard, things it? out of it. It was not <laughs> hard. And we basically would, make, would film us doing horrible, sadistic things to this dummy, um, pretending it was yes. Ed. Now, this is probably making me sound a lot more sociopathic than I really want no. to, but, um, I, yeah. I would say, yeah, any of the videos I made with my friends, it generally involved people getting, like, pitchforks <laughs> in them and stuff. So, yeah, yeah it doesn't sound unusual. If, if there wasn't fire involved, it really wasn't worthwhile. 
Sure. sure. Now, did you would you describe yourself as more of like an actiony guy at that stage in your life? I mean, I'm assuming obviously you were watching Indiana Jones, maybe some of the you know Amblin stuff, Goonies. Uh, I know you're a Carpenter fan, so Big Trouble in Little China was probably in the, in the VHS deck at some point. Is there is there a horror element at that young age as well? Because I know Craig obviously is like mm-hmm. was watching these things out of the cradle. Um, what about you? Yeah. <laughs> I really didn't get into horror as much until I was around 15 and someone showed me Army of Darkness for the first time. Yeah. And that was really a turning point for me. What about say. that movie specific? I mean, like when you watch it now, obviously, it's you watch it probably through a different filter than you did when you're 15. But it uh, can you describe what it was at age 15 that that movie did for you? And then maybe now what you appreciate it, having you know, learned about the, the filmmaking side of it? Well, it's interesting because at the age of 15, I had a stroke um, that put me in the hospital. I went from being an AB student to a CD student overnight as a result. Um, The left side of my body was paralyzed for about a week. And while I was in the hospital, a good friend of mine's father gave me a big stack of videos, half of which were porn. Um, (laughs) Seriously? Absolutely, seriously. Were you the like, second- you know, I don't have to have a stroke for you to give me porn. You could just <laughs> give me porn. Yeah. Why were you waiting yeah. for this? Yeah, yeah, yeah Jesus. Yeah, you know, too little, too late. Obviously, <laughs> yeah, man. The other half of which was Army of Darkness and Evil Dead, Evil Dead Two. Nice. So I remember I was in the hospital recovering. At this point, I had gotten most of the feeling back in my left side, but they were still. A significant amount of nerve damage. And um, I was watching Evil Dead. And I remember the first time I watched that, right. I was just kind of confused. Because mm-hmm. it was so low budget. It was, you know, the effects at this is 1992, 93. So the effects were right. pretty sh- cruddy. But sure. I mean, it was just gore on top of gore, but it was entertaining. I watched the second one and realized about halfway through, oh, this is meant to be over the top and yeah. insane. Right. And then I watched Army of Darkness, which is pretty much dark comedy mm-hmm. from beginning to end. And I yeah, felt nice. like I got it. And it was at that point I felt, I don't know, there's something about horror kind of became kind of comforting at that point. Just because maybe it was because I had nearly <laughs> died. I don't know. You take pleasure in watching other yeah. people die. Yeah. Where did you go from Army of Darkness? From Army of Darkness, um, I'd already been a fan of Big Trouble Little China at that point, which you can't really call a horror movie, but that did open the door to other John Carpenter masterpieces like The Thing. And Poltergeist had always been a very strong... To this day, I think Poltergeist is the scariest movie I've ever seen. Agreed. I was going to say, Craig will be handing you yeah. a trophy. We can, <laughs> And it's rated PG, which is yeah. crazy. Yeah, it's amazing. It just is one of the creepiest, spookiest, off-the-wall, scariest movies. I mean, as a child, you cannot get scarier than that movie. It'll scar you for life. Yeah, and it did. Yeah, and it did. (laughs) And and actually, I remember not long after Army of Darkness and The Stroke and all that, I watched for the first time ever The Shining at home. Oh, yeah. Just on a small 12-inch screen, color screen, and that was an incredibly scary experience to watch that alone at night. Yeah. It, it just has this feeling of unease from beginning to end Yeah, that yeah. never really lets you relax. 
you really don't know how it's working on you until you know you get to the end and you just realize yeah like sort of how disoriented you are and all that let, let me back up for one second you said a, tw a 12 inch color screen paint a picture for me what, what, what are we talking about <laughs> I, I um this was a television that was in our I don't know, I guess you would call it a living room, a breakfast nook. Oh, okay. um, it was a, a room attached to the kitchen. Like on the, like um, an on the counter TV kind of thing? Basically. Yeah. It was just me watching this mm -hmm. movie. It came on TV, so it was probably edited even. Yeah. It kind of destroyed me psychologically. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, uh, and how did the porn look on the 12-inch screen? Mm. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad? Okay, good to know, good to know. I, here's a question for you, because this is something that I think about every now and then, uh, as, as far as my, my own tastes go. We met each other in 95, you know, the first year of film school. I, from that point kind of forward, thought, thought of you mostly as a comedy guy, like as far as the own stuff that, you know, that you were writing, you know, comedies. And then obviously, you know, you, you wrote this great musical short film while we were in school. Did am I wrong about that? Because you know I'm I'm sitting here thinking like you know yeah well when I went to film school I was like you know a big Tim Burton guy like that you know and like David Lynch a little bit but uh you know and then that's none of that's reflected in anything I've done really <laughs> let's let's start film school then like what where were your tastes coming into that and then as far as like your own like obviously you did some writing and directing while we were there like how did that develop. And where did the horror go? Because I don't remember. Did you ever make a horror? Or write I a never horror once, or anything? with with the exception of once writing something with Craig. I never once wrote or made any kind of horror. Okay. Um, you're absolutely right. I was definitely gotcha. more of a comedy and definitely a musical um, oriented kind of guy, which I was ever since yeah. I watched The Little Mermaid when that came out in '89. <laughs> How could you not be charmed by The Little Mermaid? True. Actually, it started in like 91 when my mother took me to see Man of La Mancha on stage. And that really started my complete and utter love affair with pretty much all things musical. And so I really kind of fell in love with musicals at that point. I stream, I mainlined them all the time. Um, one of my favorites of all time was Little Shop of Horrors, which of kind of melds both things together when you come to think about it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. But yeah, I definitely appreciated what went into making a musical far more than most other types of movies. Well, right. and it, it, I will say, like, yeah, if you're in, if you're listening to this and going to film school, that is one way to stand out in film school. It was like, yeah, Jason's the musical guy. <laughs> like, you really were, you know. And like, I suspect maybe there's a bit more mainstream acceptance of that, you know, or maybe there's there's uh, young people going into school now that, you know. They saw Moulin Rouge when they were twelve or something like that. You well, know? yeah. And well, they've lived through the Glee years and like everything. Is yeah, exactly. Yeah, or even like it American Idol and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was definitely a lot less mainstream at the time. There hadn't been a successful movie musical in quite some time. I think Little Gosh. Shop of Horrors was literally the last <laughs> live action, yeah, um, <laughs> mainstream musical that had come out at that point. Well, I should ask this before I forget it. Did you have you seen La La Land? I thought it was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Cool, I thought cool. it melded a lot of classic golden age Hollywood musical elements with some new stuff, which I really appreciated. City of stars Are you shining just for me? City of stars there's so much that I can't see. 
let's transition then a little bit to what you're doing now. And you can give us your title, but you're at the Lumina Theater in Chapel Hill. You know, I've looked at pictures online on the site. I know you guys have an Instagram page and all that stuff, and we'll put links up to that. This is an independently owned theater, maybe at a time where I feel like I'm seeing those come back a little bit, or the ones that are, that are still out there are, are fighting and doing really cool stuff. I know you guys do like an outdoor series, and I'd love to hear about that. How did you end up there? And then, yeah, like what is your current, your title or just some of your duties? I am the manager at the Lumina. I ended up there about eight years ago now. I answered an ad on Craigslist mm-hmm. for a manager of a small theater. I'd always really wanted to open up one of my own movie theaters. God, wouldn't be the best? Yeah. Which I think would be amazing. And this seemed like the next best thing. I kind of immediately fell in love with it because it was small, five screens, independently owned. So there's no corporate yeah. sterility, yeah. which a lot of movie theaters tend to have. I don't know. I just kind of fell in love with it and I've been with it ever since. What do you think makes that theater, and you know, if it's not just yours specifically, but makes an independent theater different from, you know, the the Regal 25 screen with the RPX $15 tickets and all that stuff. I mean, especially right now where, you know, I mean, you can kind of predict what movies are going to, or what type of movie is going to do well. It's the big spectacle comic book thing. It's Star Wars. It's these big franchises. And I don't know, are you finding that people are fine to go to these independent theaters as long as you have those movies? Or, you know, how do you guys distinguish yourself, basically? It definitely depends on the person. Um, I think when you go to a movie theater, you bring what you want to get out of it with you when you get there. Um, different people point. expect people. Different people expect different um, experiences when they go to a movie theater. The way that we tend to stand out is we offer a smaller service, but it is more personable. Um, a lot of our staff are very knowledgeable. We have this one gentleman that works for us who is one of my favorite people I've ever met. His name is Michael Minogue. He is our ticketer and theater cleaner, and he is the most enthusiastic person I've ever met when it comes to movies. That's awesome. If we're showing Star Wars, he'll make sure he greets everyone with May the Force Be With You. <laughs> um, he'll dress up. He's just he helps get people in the mode before they even get into the theater, which I think is very important. That's maybe something I've never even thought about, but I think you're absolutely right. Like, yeah, I would love to, to walk into a theater and not just feel that, that dread of, oh, I got to go through this line and get all this crap yeah. done so I can get into the theater and get a good seat and then sit through 15 minutes of commercials and all that stuff. But, Well, yeah, and that's the thing too, like around where I am, and and really where I grew up for the most part, it's like there are very few uh, theaters that seem to be excited at all about movies. There was one place I remember when I was a kid when Goonies came out and they, they basically built the the hallway that you would walk down to get into the theater was built out like a cave. That's awesome. So the further you walk down, it's like you're walking into this cave and it's just like, man, that's I mean, how great is that? And you just generally don't see anything uh, cool like that anymore. And that brings me to this question. So how do you decide uh, what to book? Well, I wish I were the one that decides what to book. Okay. Uh, we actually have a booking agent that handles a lot of our bookings, right. okay. which in turn is based on what our demographics are, what movies tend to do well at our theater, sure. and so on. Like, for instance, horror movies yeah. die at our theater. Really? They never do well. Not even at Halloween time. We have a lot wow. of elderly folks that, and families that come to mm-hmm. our theater yeah. specifically. 
And horror movies just tend not to do well. R-rated comedies don't do well at our theater as well. Huh. With the exception yeah. of Role Models. <laughs> role Models <laughs> killed it at our theater. Of course. Wow. Yeah, right. Craig and I have talked about, you know, how strong the elderly demographic, you know, elderly, but in 60, and, 60 and over demographic is as, That's fair. as far as moviegoers. Anything specifically from last year? Like, did you guys get allied the Zemeckis movie? We did. And how did that do? It, it did okay. Yeah. It didn't do great. Like, Girl on the Train did really, really well. Okay. Um, Florence Foster Jenkins killed it at our yeah. theater. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. It was there for a good month and a half. Wow. Strong. The the senior demographic I found really they're strong moviegoers during the week. Uh huh. Matinee moviegoers they're s- steady is what they are. They're not overwhelming in numbers, but they're steady numbers and they're loyal. They're super loyal. Yes. They find one place they will return to that place over and over and over again as long as they're accommodating. And what about the like the outdoor stuff? Do you get to program any of that because I I remember like I know you guys did Back to the Future, right? We did. As a rule, they are second run movies. Uh-huh. Like last year we started the season which starts in May with The Force Awakens. Oh, nice. Okay. So something still pretty recent though, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, that was a strong shower at the theater, and we felt that would be a fun thing to watch under the stars, and we weren't yeah. wrong. It did very, very well. Um, but we also started two years ago shuffling in older movies. Like you mentioned, we did Back to the Future, and that was, mm-hmm. a, that was to this day, the strongest showing we've had outdoors. Awesome. We had a DeLorean. We had a costume contest. We did the whole thing. <laughs> That's yes. awesome. It was a yeah. really fun experience. And the thing is, there are so many children that haven't even seen that movie, yeah, yeah. aren't even aware of that movie. And to see it on the big screen with a crowded audience all laughing at the right places and cheering at the right places, it yeah. enhances the effect of the movie and it makes sure. it memorable. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I would think, too, with like kids, I, I would much rather and be, I think, more patient and accepting of watching a movie with a bunch of kids behind me if it's outside as opposed to like when I saw Rogue One and there's, you know, just entire conversations going on right behind me in the theater, <laughs> you know, and yeah. their, their parents don't really care when I get it because I got a kid, too. But, you know, outside, it's <laughs> like it's a free for all. Yes, you can make a little bit of noise. Check your phone. I don't care. Mm-hmm. I am kind of curious as well, as far as trends and stuff that's changed, I think especially since Netflix. Are you guys doing 3D? Are you moving to like laser projectors? I know one of the theaters here, they just swapped out all the seats in a couple of the theaters and they're doing reclinable seats, which seem really nice. They've got a couple rooms that have like love seats and little sofas and different things like that. Do you guys get into any of that or, or what's, what's your take on some of that stuff? Yeah, we do absolutely none of that. <laughs> Good. Um, we, we do not do 3D at all. I have a personal mantra when it comes to 3D, um, and that's basically the only movies that should ever be in 3D are really great animation yeah. or really, really crappy horror. <laughs> so no James Cameron. You know, I saw Avatar. I thought it was an okay movie, mediocre script, beautiful to look at. Uh, yeah, exactly. It was a fun but, experience in 3D. Oh, yeah. over, and in 3D, it was amazing, but yeah. it was two and a half hours of 3D. It's just a migraine a waiting to happen. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot it's to ask. I mean, I give him credit. He created camera systems that defined the film industry. Nothing's been made to its equal at this point from a techni- technical sa- standpoint. But 
from the standpoint of an audience member, it's asking a lot, really, sure. when you think about it. Do, does your audience ever come up to you guys and, are you guys getting this in 3D? I mean, do they ask that at all? Um, yeah. Um, do they? Um, okay. But a lot of times, the people that ask that are the people that are making sure we're not getting it in 3D because they can't stand to watch it in 3D. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're getting like out of a phase. Yeah, yeah, I think it's passing. I feel like for a time there, absolutely everything was in 3D. And the problem was it wasn't true 3D. It For was sure. like a two-dimensional image closer to you in perspective than another two-dimensional image that was farther away from you. Right. I mean, as opposed to a movie being shot in three, for 3D, right. it just became everything's being converted to 3D so they could jack ticket prices up. Yeah. And I mean, people can sense a scam and that's just sure. a scam. Yeah. Um, as far as the reclining seats, um, I actually had the experience to go to a theater f that had fully reclining seats. They had like each seat had its own little tray and you could order food and you could nice. lean all the way back and lay back and put your feet up. It was very comfortable. Mm -hmm. The problem I had with it was that it really is isolating. It doesn't feel like you're in a movie theater at all. It feels like you're in your living room, which yeah. a lot of people want to feel. Mm -hmm. But to me, the theater going experience is not just the movie that's being projected. It's being part of the crowd experiencing this film for the first time. It's yeah. being part of the laughter and part of the fear and part of the anxiety and part of all of you being transported to one place at one time together. It's a group effort. Yeah. Right. And when it becomes you alone, it's not as much fun. I mean, who wants to go to a movie theater if they're the only one in the theater? Fair enough. Me. Oh. Well, besides Sean, of course. Yes. I got uh, a lot of business to take care of by myself. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't mind going by myself, but it is weird when there's only like three people in there. Yeah, yeah. That's sure. true. Yeah. Yeah, it feels uh, a little more illicit than it should be. Now, let yeah. me ask this. It looks like here online, uh, Jake Kunkel two months ago, left a review of the Lumina Theater. God, are you on Yelp, Craig? What's going on? Uh, this, is, this is Google. <laughs> okay. Now, he gave it four stars, so clearly oh, he's uh, a level-headed gentleman. <laughs> but he, he seems to take issue with the 50-cent refills on popcorn. Now, what would you tell Jake about those 50-cent refills, Jason? What would I tell Jake? Well, I would tell Jake, first of all, if he was not aware, the only way a movie theater makes money is through its concessions. Yep. Yep. All of your ticket sales go back to the distributor, or at least a very, very, very high percentage. Mm -hmm. The only profit a movie theater takes in are through the concessions, which is why concessions tend to be, in some people's opinions, overpriced. Sure. 50 cent refills, honestly, is not that strange a thing. Some movie theaters will offer free refills for like the first refill of something or unlimited free refill sodas. And I definitely can see the appeal for that for sure. Personally, I would prefer to go that way as well. So I'm right there with you, Jay Kunkel. Sure. No, no, no. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make an opposite point. Oh, what's this guy? What was his name, Craig? It seems to be Jake Kunkel. Jake. Jake Kunkel. Yeah. Hear me out. Maybe for your body's sake, you don't need a second bag of popcorn on the refill. I have never. Yes. Because I have never, ever in my life gotten a refill on popcorn at a movie theater. And even the small is pretty big now, right? The small is now at least a medium pretty much yeah. anywhere you go. And the large is just you can't even see the screen. Yeah. Also, Jake, every Ace Hardware store that I know of has free popcorn. 
So after oh. you watch the movie, just go over to Ace and get yeah. your damn popcorn and leave leave the theater alone, yeah. okay? They got to make just money. Just stay home and eat your popcorn, Jake. Jesus, Jake. I, I can see that you got um, your work cut out for you there, Jason, dealing with some of these customers. Oh, yeah. They seem, they seem like they're probably good people. <laughs> and, you know, to be fair, maybe Jake is, you know, maybe he's like 95 years old. Maybe he was at Florence Foster Jenkins and, you know, 50 cents was a lot of money back in 1922, yeah. you know. <laughs> oh, when you I see where you're going with that. Yeah, he didn't take yeah. it. He didn't take inflation into account. Is what I'm saying. Sure. No, I mean to him, yeah, fifty cents is like that's a car or something, probably. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So. <laughs> but I like this. I'm getting a good kind of perspective of like what the ultimate Jason Barker theater would look like if you had your own. There would be no 3D, free popcorn refills. It sounds like you're on Jake's side, so that's nice. Sure. No reclining seats. Would you do old school single screen? Or would you do, you know, still do a couple screens? Would you do a balcony? What would it look like in the Jason Barker theater? If if I had a choice, you really have to have multiple screens if you're going to make any money whatsoever, just so you can have choices of things to see. Sure. I would love to have a classic giant one screen with balcony man's Chinese type of deal. Anything to enhance the theater going experience, I think would be important. And having a Chinese man in the theater would help that. <laughs> having a Chinese man for every seat. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I think you're right because it, it feels like you can just tell some of these theater chains are trying their darndest to compete with the allure of staying at home and watching a million movies that are at your fingertips. Yeah. But they're doing so in like gimmicky ways or in not even like fun gimmicky ways. But, you know, it's these these little things. And like, that's interesting that you're saying like, yeah, here I am sitting in a recliner feeling like eh, this is just kind of like being at home, but not in a good way, you know. Right. No, it, it has to be about like that experience, like that that magic that was there in the early days. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, how, how do you get back to that? So the expense you deal with when you go to these theaters that have the very, the luxury seats, you're looking at ticket prices being jacked up by double yeah. or more a lot of times, $15, $16 a ticket during the day, which is yeah. crazy. If you have a family, that's just not something you can do on a regular basis know. at all. Yeah. So let me ask this. I imagine, yeah, there's a lot of perks about working in a movie theater. One of them has to be that you get to see everything. I feel like you see everything. You know, we keep in contact. That You're always commenting on, I just saw this movie. I just saw this movie. You know, the night before it's the general release or whatever. Is that the best thing about being at the theater? In my opinion, that's absolutely the best thing about being in a movie theater. Yeah. Because I love watching movies. I love being the first person to have seen something and so on. So absolutely. And you get your kids in for free? Yep. Yep. That's a a positive. They got to love that too. Yeah. (laughs) That's fantastic. It is. The, 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 The bummer is that this particular theater, the Lumina, is about an hour away from my house. Oh, there you oh, go. Yeah. The commute. So that's, that's, the worst. Yeah. that's the one kind of bummer. But it's cool for the kids. They enjoy having a father that runs a movie theater because they get to brag about seeing Rogue One or whatnot before anybody yeah. else. And yeah. It's bragging rights, which I can allow them to enjoy for at least another year or two until they're teenagers at least. You're watching them the day before to, to like check the, the run or you're watching them the day they come out because you're sitting like – I guess, what is the situation in which you're watching the movie for the first time? It's usually 
Uh, two to three nights before the movie opens, and it's just to check that there's nothing wrong with the digital, well, nowadays digital print. I right. was working there before digital became really a big deal when we were still dealing with 35 millimeter. But yeah, I mean, just make sure the files aren't corrupted so that when we open on Friday, the movies run smoothly. And Has that happened, that files have been corrupted? Oh, yeah. Um, we've had like frequently? movies that, not frequently, it's very okay. few and far between. But it's it's not just the files corrupted. We have to assemble various parts. Like we put the ads, we put the trailers on it and right. stuff. And we have to make sure I didn't goof and put a 3D trailer on there or something. And right. I didn't put an R-rated trailer on Finding Dory. <laughs> yeah. um, that kind of thing. And just make sure the, the cues are in the right place. Make sure the lights come down at the right place. The lights go up in the right place. But occasionally, yeah, uh, we'll get a, a hard drive that's been that's had issues one way or another and a file won't translate and we'll just get a black screen. Jeez. Wow. And what do you guys do about like noise complaints or cell phone complaints or any of that kind of stuff? I mean, are you seeing people still texting in movie? Th- I mean, does that just happen a lot? Is it like inescapable? Unfortunately, yes. Um, I don't tolerate it if I'm aware of it. I, of course, can't sit in every theater while it's happening. But if someone complains to me, I will take care of it as quickly as I possibly can. It dilutes the theater going experience. And that's the most important thing. That's true. and, And so there's absolutely no 35 millimeter now. At the Lumina, is that what the deal is? You'd be hard-pressed to find 35mm anywhere, simply because theaters or distribution companies are no longer distributing films in 35mm. Wow, yeah. Anything made or less than two years ago will not have a 35mm print anywhere on this earth. That's very sad. Did you you just cry, Craig? I haven't. I have like a one single tear. It sounds very, like, final. Doesn't it when you put it, it that sure way? It sure does. <laughs> I was a big fan of 35 millimeter. I mean, I will give it the digital, the hard drives that come are a million times more convenient mm-hmm. sure. than, than several cans of 35 millimeter film, which you got to put together with tape and scissors for the most part. Yeah. It's yeah. definitely more convenient. But I'll tell you, the projector, the 35 millimeter projector I had was built in 19. 19- 45 i think and still worked great whereas the new digital projectors need to be replaced almost every five to seven years wow that's crazy that is crazy computers man computers computers you know who didn't have any computers who darby o'gill and the little people (laughs) sure didn't (laughs) way we go and die three track That was my smooth segue into the second half. Yeah, that was the smoothest <laughs> of smooth. I just segues. I didn't want to bring everything to a screeching halt. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't. So yeah, like a so computer would. Yeah, people won't even notice that we switched over. Yeah, it's like a like a 35 millimeter print just caught on fire while sure. we were watching it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> Well, huh, huh, that's funny. That brings us to the movie today that Jason uh, suggested we watch, which is 
a Disney movie from 1959 called Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Now, I... It's more like... Hang on a second. It's more like... Darby O'Gill and the Little People! Thank you, Sean. Yeah. Sean will be uh, uh, providing the, um, the, the Irish translations as we go yeah. through this talk. <laughs> That's it. So, I was not familiar with the movie. Sean, I think you also were not familiar with the movie. Knowing that Jason was a musical fan, I was like, hey, man, why don't, is there a musical that you know of that maybe we could check out? Because uh, I've been wanting to do one on this, this podcast. And he was like, what about this Darby O'Gill and the Little People movie with Sean Connery? And so I'm immediately, a musical with Sean Connery? Yes. Right. Yeah. And then uh, I was like, wait, this is a Disney movie? I've never remotely heard of this movie. Yeah. And there may be several reasons why. <laughs> But I did it. I didn't. I enjoyed it. But I am curious, yeah. Jason. Like, when the hell did this come into your life? Did you watch this as a kid? I did. Yeah. This you was did. on the roll of various VHSs that I had at home of Disney movies. It was with the porno. With the porno <laughs> <laughs> and Army of Darkness. Um, and just Darby O'Gill was stuck in there. That's a weird, weird mix. <laughs> uh, it tells so much about me, really. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the truth of the matter is, I remembered this as being a lot more musical than mm-hmm. it turns out that it was. <laughs> I guess because I haven't seen it in 25 years. Yeah. But um, for what it's worth, the one song that is in this movie is sung by Sean Connery, which kind of yeah. makes yes. it worthwhile, in my opinion. And, and, and I will say, I mean, it certainly looks, by all accounts, it looks like a musical. It doesn't look like it wouldn't be a musical. <laughs> Right, instead yeah. of like Casablanca or you know Citizen Kane, it's like it looked very colorful. It took me a while, maybe ten minutes, before I realized. So this isn't really a Sean Connery movie, but that's okay. <laughs> Sean Connery is not named Darby O'Gill, for instance. That's a little spoiler yeah. for, uh, to our audience. Uh, I, I was expecting a very different story. Yeah, there's one DVD cover I think that is just straight up him and uh, Janet Monroe, who plays the yeah. Katie character. And like, yeah, the movie has nothing to do with either of them, really. Uh, well, I mean, in a roundabout yeah. way. Yeah, but, um, somehow Darby is just nowhere to be found. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, all right, we got the little people. We got these other folks. Darby O'Gill, not right. so much. But so this is, yeah, 59. So this predates, you know, this is, if you know your Disney movies at all, it's definitely in the Swiss Family Robinson, Mary Poppins. Bedknobs and Broomsticks. In fact, I think the director, Robert Stevenson, did a couple of those movies himself. Uh, he did The Love Bug and the other Herbie movie. It's, it's of that ilk. It is that, that sort of like family film from that era. Live action, a little bit of cool special effects in there, you know, and this fantasy element. And I don't know, like I found it fascinating to just, it just, it feels like the most Irish movie I've ever seen in my life. And oh, yeah. <laughs> Like to imagine that Disney was like, you know what, we yeah, like we need, we got to hit that demographic, man. Like this is, we'll take that those Irish folk tales about leprechauns and turn it into a family classic. And it seems like such a strange recipe now to even think that that was possible, <laughs> you know, a, a possible mindset. I don't know, Jason, watching it again, what did you think of this movie? I, I didn't hate it. I, I was yeah. entertained by it. Did not quite have the same effect that it did when I was a kid. Sure. But it was not bad. Craig, what about you? It kind of felt like like if Disney made a kid's version of a Twilight Zone episode. Wow. <laughs> okay. That's that, that's how I felt through so much of it. Like I felt like 
Like, it's kind of like, oh, this is kind of fun and kind of funny. But at any second, this, this will just take a super dark turn. And it did several times, took really dark turns. That yeah. I kind of felt like the movie didn't necessarily think of it as being that dark. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, uh, I got to say, man, that was that was a, a good watching experience for sure. What about you, Sean? Yeah, I mean, I was entertained throughout the whole thing. It definitely was a little different than what I was expecting. I think hands down, you you know, you got to take advantage of the luxury of being able to turn the subtitles on when you watch this. Yeah. Because it is, <laughs> it's, it's thick. thick. I mean, it, it's yeah. just, it's very, very thick. And like, um, you know, just to sort of like get into the, a little bit of the plot, it, the Darby O'Gill character is basically a, I think he was like a 70-year-old man. Like He's playing at least 60 and up, right? This guy yeah. who is a caretaker of, you know, this large parcel of land and a state, basically, of some lordship. None of that really matters, except for he's not really taking care of the place. He's spending most of his time down in the pub telling stories about leprechauns. And, you know, there's several moments in this movie where I thought, is this whole thing going to end up being a drunken dream that this dude had? (laughs) Because, like, everybody, like, nobody... Well, it, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. There's a weird dichotomy even in the first scene of him at the pub when he's telling the story about what happened when he had the pot of gold, but then the leprechaun, King Brian, the, you know, the head of the leprechauns, tricked him into making the fourth wish that got rid of it all and, and will we'll come back into play. But you got like three young guys who were laughing at the story, and then the rest of the older dudes are like, immediately on their feet up in those guys faces don't you laugh at this you know it was like i was like wow they're really protective yeah. of darby o'gill and his insanity and his alcoholism you know mm-hmm. and uh <laughs> you know i think later you find you know katie says that he doesn't even drink but it's still like the whole time like there it has that sort of wizard of oz element a little bit where you feel like this might not end up being real like none of this might right. <laughs> you know and they but to their credit I think they play with that really, really well, even to the extent that Sean Connery, who does not believe any of this, Darby at one point captures King Brian in a bag and is telling Sean Connery, he's like, he's right there, look inside, you know. And when Sean Connery looks in, he sees a rabbit, you know, but that's because the leprechaun, being a leprechaun, uses his magic to turn into a rabbit. It's a simple thing. But But um, the movie doesn't really go to pains to, to really confirm that. No, yeah. Not and really. So, yeah. No. I mean, it was all that's all on me being like a viewer yeah. that's like, can this really be what this is about? <laughs> can it really be this the thing about non alcoholism? Or yeah. Yes, know. and that the, and that these little people are indeed real. There's leprechauns, but uh, yeah. On the whole, I think uh, it's 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 definitely not boring. You know, it's no. it's not, it doesn't have that sort of languid pace that some of these older movies, specifically, I think in this genre can have at times and uh i mean some fantastic effect shots Mm -hmm. you know i mean some really good force perspective work and just moments where i'm like there's an adult male again he might be a little drunk but he's sitting on the stairs with a leprechaun and it looks totally real that they're having this conversation and that one of them is tiny and one of them is not 1959 man that's that's some good work and it's effective Yeah, they did a fantastic job. Because you know, if they were just green screening it or something, it would be the most obvious thing you've ever seen. Oh, it'd be terrible, yeah. Yeah. And it's really like, yeah, I mean, I think I sent you guys, like, two, I've found some videos on YouTube where they're talking about the effects of it. And there's just some behind the scenes stuff. And they mentioned 
how this was also used in Lord of the Rings and like it's it's totally the exact same thing and in some cases this is better I think which is crazy to say but yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think some of those effects like hold up in a weird way better than than they did in Lord of the Rings because of how much CGI they did to augment some of that stuff true Jason I, I am kind of curious though like as a kid I mean obviously yeah you thought maybe there was a little more music involved were you charmed by the idea of leprechauns when you watched this? I mean, like, do you remember like that kind of stuff or like that dance sequence or them like shooting like lightning bolts out of their whip or whatever the hell it was that King Brian had a staff or something? I mean, absolutely. I think as a kid, yeah. you're very charmed by this idea of these magical little beings. And like you said, the movie was very convincing in how it portrayed them up near these regular sized human beings. And you'd see these fully functional hum little human, little leprechauns. And you never really questioned that it was real or fake. Right. Yeah. Um, you just kind of experienced it. And so as a kid, I think that was probably one of the biggest pulls of this movie to me. Do you think kids would buy this movie now? It's funny you should ask that, because as we're talking right now, my kids are watching it downstairs. No kidding. Oh. Yeah. I can't wait to figure out what they think of whiskey and poteen and uh, yeah. stout and <laughs> all the drink requests they're going to have of you afterwards. Yeah, it's definitely a bygone age of when it was totally acceptable to show your main, char your main Disney characters getting hammered. Could we have another round? There's nothing stopping us. Good. Oh, I wish all barmaids were like Mary McCluskey. McCluskey? When she served you a drink, why she served you good whiskey. <laughs> you are with Darby O'Gill for so much more of this movie than I would have guessed from the setup and from the fact that Darby is played by Albert Sharp, who, guys, I don't know if you looked him up at all. No. Uh, any guesses to when he was born? 1809. Close. <sighs> 1885. Oh, my Lord. Wow. 1885. I know he was a big actor in the um, West End and, and um, Irish theater circuit, and I know he was in Brigadoon as well. He was in Brigadoon. <laughs> but uh, oddly enough, he's only on IMDb. They only have him uh, 14 total credits, uh, film and TV. So, yeah, it looks like maybe he spent most of his time in the theater. Yeah, I mean, that again is like, I can't imagine any sort of modern version of this because there's no way they'd let, I mean, how often do you see like family movies where just like the main dude is is of that age and kind of, yeah. you know, falling down a little bit? Um, and, and he's literally the last character you're introduced to in this story. Uh, it's almost 20 minutes into the movie yeah, before yeah. you meet Darby O'Gill, which is crazy. Yes. Yeah, again, I, I can't explain to you the amount of confusion I had about this delightful <laughs> children's movie where someone's yeah. name is Pony, and I don't even know who that is yet. And then, yeah, and then Sean Connery's not Darby. And, uh, yeah, uh, I, I had to shut it off for a while and sit down and think about it. Yeah, reconsider your life. So Sean Connery wanders through the movie generally with a bemused look on his face. This is how I feel like he spent the entire movie until Katie gets sick. He's just sort of, huh, hmm, huh, huh. Crazy old man. Yep. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic teeth, though. Yeah, man, amazing teeth, amazing eyebrows. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, and, and I heard I heard the reviews were generally not favorable for him. Is that when this came out, like the reviews tended to be like, oh, well, sure, he's handsome, but. Yeah, this was pre-James Bond, Sean Connery. Oh, yeah. This was 29-year-old Sean Connery. Well, in mm-hmm. fact, I read somewhere that supposedly, oh, hell, who's the guy that does the, that has the whole Bond fran- franchise? Um, Ian Broccoli Fleming? Or- Broccoli? Fleming, yes. This was one of the movies that helped convince him that Connery could be Bond, I think. Maybe really? partly because of what you're talking a little bit, which is that just that good-natured charm and, you know, some of that stuff. You know, maybe you see a little bit of that in, in Bond. How about his acting when he was asleep and uh, the leprechaun was <laughs> trying to plant ideas in his head and he's like halfway sitting up but his eyes are closed and he's like, oh, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to fall in. I mean, that was amazing. I, I really did enjoy that scene. That's a weird thing to ask an actor to do. Okay, like you need to pretend you're asleep so don't open your eyes. You're going to have this dialogue with a leprechaun and uh, you can't look at him. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I say, play this scene as if you're awake, but just keep your yeah. eyes closed throughout the yes. entire thing. Cause there's a leprechaun sitting right <laughs> yeah. over there. So yeah, just, just chill on that. Uh, that was crazy. Let's talk though. We got to talk about the fall down the well into the fairy mountain that Darby takes. There's yeah. so much amazing stuff that happens in that. And like, I came away, not even came away. I'm like five minutes into that sequence thinking, if you removed this from this movie and showed it to people, you would blow their minds and they would not know what the hell. I mean, oh, yeah. what the hell is going on, I think. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, Darby at some point goes chasing after his horse up the hill. You know, he has to do rounds at night. That's part of his duties as a caretaker on this piece of land. Right. And Indeed. so there's the famous mountain, Naknashiga at the top of the hill where there's ruins. And that's where the leprechauns are. We all know that he gets up yeah. there and then somebody described to me what happens to that horse. So what happened to the horse is <laughs> that it went to a, it went to a late seventies black Sabbath concert. <laughs> Yes. It's the only explanation exactly. I can come up with. And uh, yeah, went all color inverted. And yeah, I, I wasn't <laughs> sure that there, there's some there's some tie to that uh, as to the banshee at the end. Uh, but I still, I was not 100% sure. What, what do you think, Jason? It's not really explained until near the end, but the horse yeah. apparently is a puka, which is another Irish kind of trickster spirit that could do either harm or good. Mm-hmm. And so I guess when he's getting all acid metal there in color, <laughs> I guess that's him shape-shifting into puka form. Although, albeit not very clearly. No, but yeah, I think you're right. And I think King Brian had some line about, you know, basically they they wanted Darby to fall down the hole. I mean, I, that that's kind of the impression right. I got. Am I wrong about that? But, you know, they were trying to, to capture him down there. And then once he's down there, you know, you get some great sequences where, you know, yeah, there's a room full of leprechauns, like a cave full of leprechauns and some very large furniture and swords and things like that, gold. And you got Albert mm-hmm. Sharp, Darby O'Gill walking around. And, yeah, the proportions look right, and it's pretty cool. And then the violin comes out, and... uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now I have a question. I have a question about the, the, this this moment. Okay. Because I just wonder if it played the same for you as it did for me. <laughs> now, now the uh, 
Pokemon or whatever, knock him down the well. Pokemon. So <laughs> the leprechauns. No, but the leprechauns. <laughs> they wanted. They wanted to trap him. They wanted to trick him into coming. This is like a whole back and forth between Darby and and King Brian. They love to just trick each other and trip each other up. Apparently, so they've tricked him down into into their lair where he will stay forever. Apparently, which Darby is not very happy about. Anyway, they give. Brian, King Brian gives Darby this this violin, Stradivarius, a beautiful violin. Yep. You know, to try and say, hey, look, things aren't so bad down here. Okay. So then Darby says, ah, well, uh, uh, maybe he didn't say it, but he plays the fox chase on the violin, to which all of these trickster leprechauns say, well, let's go on a fox chase. <laughs> yeah, that lost me a little bit. And then there are horses, and they're riding around. Again, another moment where if you pulled this just out of the movie and showed it to somebody, they'd think that they had gone insane. Because <laughs> yeah. it's like Darby's laughing, tiny horses are running around him in a yeah. circle, and it all looks amazing, honestly. Like, it really does look amazing does. to me. But, uh, but yeah, so that's all happening. The, the wall of the mountain splits open. They all run out into the darkness to chase a fox because somebody played a song called The Fox Chase. And that's how Darby got up. And that, to me, was the weakest escape of the movie. From there, it really it honestly got better. Like yeah. I, I thought like th- them sort of tricking each other got much more entertaining after that. But that one, I was kind of like, so wait a second. All he has to do is play this song and you guys jump on horses and ride away? Seems like that might be easy. But maybe I read it wrong. Do, do you guys have a different read on that? Well, I don't think leprechauns are as clever as they make themselves out to be, for starters. Mm. You know, mm. I, I think they're Super easily cool. persuaded by a good fiddle tune, obviously. <laughs> well, yeah, clearly. They like riding their horses. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I got lost in there with, with some of that as well. I mean, that is a, it's a really long sequence. And, it like, it, it's fascinating to watch though i mean it really kind of is but man it just goes on and on it's 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 kind of cuckoo crazy Mm -hmm. there i i don't know how you read something else unless there's some bit of irish folktale legend tied to that song that might be knowledgeable among that culture sure otherwise it was odd i don't know how the leprechauns knew that there was a fox anywhere around you know i guess maybe they just got inspired by the song as opposed to actually well, I'm just gonna... that, yeah that was my feeling yeah. is if someone plays this song they all go oh fox fox yeah is there a fox? And there's, where's a fox right and they all, certainly yeah. uh they're certainly risking being seen by going out in a large drove on very small horses i, I would imagine <laughs> <laughs> that seems like it would draw attention as it draws the attention of the, the poor hapless horse who for some reason for a short time in this movie the horse what was the horse's name Charlotte Cleopatra no. Cleopatra, Cleopatra. Yep. Good call. for a short time the movie becomes the horse's movie <laughs> like it felt like we were okay. watching this through the horse's eyes for a while yeah and like even to the point where and I don't mean to jump ahead and we, we can stay where we are necessarily but but the uh, the horse it watches uh, Darby and King Brian. Yes, talk yes. it out a little while later. A <laughs> lot, lot of lot of looks between him and Darby, and then and then finally the horse is like ah, and, and like lays down and goes to sleep. Yes. and the scene like fades out. And I was like, wait, wait, are we? Is this the horse is moving now? Like <laughs> that was amazing. I, I loved that. Yeah. The horse. I loved that. Yes, a POV horse. 
Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> since the horse is a puka, as we now know. Um, oh, is the horse, the horse is always a puka. I don't it know. It wasn't like a puka pretending to be clear. Okay. I don't know. I'm not, guys, this is, this is like the inception of Disney movies from the 50s. It's so hard to follow. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really a different and unique. Here's yeah. just a general leprechaun question for you guys that, that never dawned on me before I watched this movie. What, what do they need gold for? Which ones? Anybody or the leprechaun? No, any leprechaun. What are they doing with the? What are they do with gold? There's not a, like a, an exchange of currency. That I mean, are they not? They're not buying things. They don't seem right? to need. Yeah, they don't seem to need gold to get anything. They live in a cave. It, it seems to me in this movie, the way they paint leprechauns is basically as hoarders and collectors for of sure. Fine right. things, treasures and uh, True. treasures artifacts. from all over. Yeah. And and I like that honestly, and then and it makes sense because any of the humans they run into, those humans are going to want gold, and it seems to be a good way to buy yourself your way out of something, if nothing else. Maybe, yeah, I guess so. It certainly yeah. sets up some nice tricks to play on. It does, elderly gentlemen. I mean, you might have something there. It might simply be the carrot that's meant to bait the trap that they right. so often utilize. It's kind of interesting too because the dynamic between Darby. And King Brian, it changes a little bit over time. I mean, there is sort mm-hmm. of a, um, it's not just that they hate each other. I mean, yes, Darby does threaten to feed King Brian to his cat, Ginger. That's pretty horrifying. <laughs> but there's times where it's sort of like they have each other's back or like they are, uh, they're friendly among each other, you know? And uh, sure. I liked that. I mean, again, like that's not where I expected that to go. Well, and that was a thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, they definitely trick each other a lot. But when King Brian first brought him down to the cave, he seemed to have fairly, I don't know, pure, purish motives. Yeah. Or, or I, I thought anyway, like it was not great that he was trapped, but it was something where it was like, ah, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm basically sheltering you from this. You yeah, know, like leave your decision yeah. you have to make. And it was like, oh, he seems kind of nice. And then, yeah, the next thing you know, he's like, oh, I'll feed you to my cat. It's like, <laughs> what? What's happening? Like that's that's and that's really when it, it started to feel so much to me like a Twilight Zone episode. Like it just felt like this could get a lot darker than than it, it sort of should in a weird way. Like like he seems like he's friends with him, and so it took it took a while for that to kind of bounce back and forth. Where I sort of felt like, oh, they just they just trick each other. It's all good in the hood. Well, I love too that like every time they would have like this nice moment together, and then yeah, there would be a trick revealed, and like immediately the one would fly off the hand. You murdering son of a but I'll kill you! Yeah, you know? yeah. It's just like <laughs> threatening the worst things, you know. And it's like, yeah. well, two seconds ago you guys were like best buds, you know, and uh, I love that. It's like there were so many times where I kept thinking of like Burgess Meredith and Rocky or something, like you know, sure. like hey, I, I, Rocky, you know, he's just yeah. gonna like chew somebody's head off, but uh, it's a pretty good guy underneath it all. You know? <laughs> Yeah I, yeah, I definitely felt like there was a mutual respect between the two of them, probably stemming from their constant battle of wits. And I think that was part of the allure of the whole movie is that there's not a clear-cut bad guy, good guy, really. It's yeah. just these two guys that sort of flip-flop depending on what's going on in the B and C story yeah. throughout the movie. They bust each other's balls. I mean, they're pretty much every guy friend you ever know. Yeah, except one is really small. Let's talk for a second then about that B story. You know, it's hard enough to do believable new romances in a short amount of time when it's the A story. 
there I thought there was some weird stuff in the interactions between Sean Connery and Janet Monroe. And, and, you know, not necessarily from an acting standpoint, but just from a character standpoint. I mean, there's the moment where she finds out that her father has actually, you know, essentially been retired, you know. Mm-hmm. And and the only reason that she didn't know that earlier is because, yeah, Darby didn't want to break it to her yet. And so right. she's furious at Sean Connery for not saying anything and thinks that he's kind of like stepping on her. Uh, on their toes there and like kicking them out of their house. But then I don't, I don't even really remember how she came back around to being in love with him. Like I don't, <laughs> I just don't, I know yeah. they, they sang a song together, right? I mean, I guess that'll, that's enough. That might do it. But, um, was it just because he was at her bedside after she came to? No, it was before that. Yeah. Oh. Like she brought him lunch while he was <laughs> singing and reaping one day. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Reaping, reaping and but singing. Then, that's a good question. There were like that. There yeah. was that weird moment where she was, or they were gonna kiss, and then like she went for a kiss. I don't know. There was like some, and she or she's oh, standing yeah. there with her eyes closed, and, and just some of that. Like, showed up. Yeah. yeah, I was like, I don't know if this is the strength of the movie. Yeah, maybe the leprechaun stuff really is the gold here. Um, to use use their own language. Um, Yeah. I I don't know. Like, I I guess you just don't expect that much. I mean, the pony character was sort of like, you know, he's like Gaston in, uh, (laughs) yeah, Beauty and the Beast, but with less, you know, less charm, I guess, or less humor to it. And I I feel like in a way that was a missed opportunity. I would have actually liked a little more of a human antagonist in this thing, I think. Yeah. You know, Does that but then sense? you also had to you had to set up the uh, gratuitous, horrible violence that ends the movie. This delightful <laughs> children's tale. Uh, yeah, you know, if he had been laughed at the whole time, it would have just been one punch. So yeah, I mean, are, are we close enough to the end to kind of talk out these last few tricks? Oh, of course, yeah, sure. Uh, because, because this was, you know, th- things got things got real, as they say, <laughs> towards the end, where uh, Katie is uh, she she well she has she has uh, the the fever that people get in movies where they might not live, whatever the <laughs> sort of a general fever, and uh, everyone's very worried, and then uh, and you know Darby goes to talk to King Brian. Oh, what happens? And 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 then uh, the 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 death carriage is coming for her. Which well, is also... the whole suspense of the second act is when is Darby going to make his third wish? And he's trying sure, to figure yes. out Good what point. he's got. Three wishes. He made one of them, which I don't even remember what the hell it was for. And then he kind of made one. The second, I think, was for Sean Connery to see. Brian the Leprechaun, because again, Darby's pride is constantly getting in the way of anything he should be doing, and that's another instance of that. But he is trying to do right by his daughter and figure out a way sure. which she can remain in this town and, and like in good standing and, and the best for her. He doesn't want something for himself, you know. He's he's moved past the point of being selfish, and then what he ultimately does is he wishes that she's going to be okay because that's when the banshee starts showing up. And he's seen the Banshee before when his wife died. And so that means death is knocking at, at Katie's door. And so he wishes that it would take him instead. You get the flying coach of death 
which uh, all that stuff, yeah, it's kind of comical. Again, it's the same sort of Sabbath, you know, somebody licked the electrical outlet effect, um, you know, here going on with, with uh, the banshee and the carriage. But it, yeah. it was, it was pretty creepy. Like it had a, a real, sure. seriously, I mean, basically this guy is walking off to his death, you know, willingly yeah. to save his daughter. And then when he gets in that carriage, you know, and maybe I'm skipping some steps here, of course, yeah, because there's Sean right. Connery's running around. He makes a fourth wish in Brian's present, and Brian shows up in the carriage. Brian is clearly, you know, leading him to make this fourth wish. And then what right. we know from before is you, you wish for four things, you don't get any of them. So um, yeah. that takes back everything. That's a really obvious outcome, but one that I felt was satisfying. I don't know. Yeah, me you too. guys, yeah. I kind of, you know, there was that moment where I kind of saw what was coming. And my first reaction was that I felt like it was kind of a cheat. But then the more I thought about it, no, it actually worked really uh, pretty perfectly. Yeah. If you assume that the death carriage is kind of a brainless thing and doesn't know that somebody fell out of the death carriage. Sure. So the rules of the death carriage, I'm just saying, are important. Yeah. I felt like they had earned the sympathy for Darby at this point. I really like this is so cheesy, but when his daughter like goes and runs to him when he's at the pub and he's getting ready to like make his final wish in the presence of all his friends in a bar, of course, and she knocks the bag out of the way because she needs him to take this other thing seriously. Brian, the leprechaun runs out of the bag as a rabbit and runs off and like, so stupid. I did. I felt really, really bad for Darby in that moment because, you know, it's like, <laughs> here he is. He had this entire town like hanging on to him. They had come over to believe that he had the leprechaun. He had done the thing with the shot glass, you know, the shot of whiskey in the bag that was drunk, you know, and then tossed back out. And yeah. then as soon as that rabbit comes out, it just completely discredits that whole story. I don't know. I felt, I felt sad for the dude. I didn't want yeah. him to die. I mean, that, that seemed like where his life was supposed to go. And, yeah. and, and you know, and, and that, that, that brings up a sort of a tangent question for me, which is you have all these leprechauns running around. Nobody wishes for a dentist. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Something to think about if you ever have those three wishes out there, guys. Yeah. Barker, let's, uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, favorite moment we haven't talked about? Anything else that stands out about this movie? Watching it now for the first time in 25 years? The highlight for me is definitely the cave. Um, the special effects yeah. are really pretty incredible. The fact that they use a lot of the same tricks that Lord of the Rings used, Force Perspective, and the matte painting, which was absolutely spectacular. So good, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is really just a lost art, which just doesn't exist anymore except in digital formats, which pale in comparison when you look at some of these classic old movies and what they were able to accomplish. I know. And isn't that insane? Because it takes an army of people to make those like digital set extensions. And like the whole oh, point yeah. of those tend to be, yeah, just make it look real as possible. And, and like this, like, no, it, it's not only just about making it real. It's like, it makes it like beautiful and magical and like something, you know, that's, not entirely real, you know, and, and I think it's so much better. Yeah, I'm with you 100% on those matte paintings. Craig, what about you? Anything else? I don't know. I, you know, I, I think I will puzzle over the fox chase. <laughs> yeah. For many a moon. I would love to find that online and hopefully, you know, if, if the whole sequence is contained. I don't know, because Disney is kind of tight on all that stuff. But if it's out there on sure. YouTube or something, we'll definitely put that up. Because, yeah, it needs to be seen yeah. to be believed. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm going to say I, I really liked and appreciated by the end of it, you know, and I, I joked about this being the most Irish movie in the world. Like it, it really kind of is, but I think in a, in a, in a way that, that I like because it does sort of immerse you in this world. Like I, I wrote down, you know, just some of the dialogue and the slang they use. And um, even just when they're getting drunk with Brian and they're doing basically a, like a limerick contest, you know, and they're rhyming and like stuff like that. But um, there's some great lines, you know, he, the one I wrote down was your heart's as cold as a wet Christmas. I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> you know, it's like, I've yeah. never heard anybody say that before in my life. And that's, that's terrific. They did, yeah. yeah they really did have some good uh, one-liners. Yeah, like there was a couple of those. Um, I got to say, I looked up some of the slang because there were a couple words. Uh, Darby calls the leprechaun a little franey at one point. And yeah. every one that I wrote down that I looked up, I could not find an answer. So, I, I mean, this is like some deep Irish slang, I think, or either or they, either they just made it all up. I don't know. <laughs> but but um, <laughs> there was something, uh, no, no. yeah, when I'm roaring like Doran's bull, and I was like, I don't know what that means whatsoever. Oh. Couldn't, couldn't find that either. Um, but I, I will say, like, again, it adds up to the effect of making you feel like, this this was a movie made, you know, in good faith of, of of this culture, and whether that's true or not, I don't really know. But um, I thought it was interesting. Also interesting that yeah. that Walt Disney felt like he had to put up at the beginning of the movie the little prescript that said, "My thanks to King Brian of Nakashiga and his leprechauns, whose gracious cooperations made this picture possible." Walt <laughs> Disney. That's such a nice. Disney thing, right? Well, and, and I'll throw one last thing in there. You really don't want to miss the fist fight that happens mostly off screen. <laughs> at the, end. Yeah. the Albert Shark reaction fist fight. <laughs> yeah. Those reactions yeah. are, they're almost as good as the Winona Ryder SAG Stranger Things award <laughs> speech reactions that's going around on the internet you, you right now. You can definitely mash those up. You could, I mean, yeah. Maybe we should. We would be the only people that would ever even think to do that. And exactly. so I, it sounds like we all three would recommend it. I definitely would. I don't know. I don't want to speak for you guys, but it seems that way, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this is, yeah, this is floating around. Uh, it's available for rent almost everywhere digitally, and then I'm sure you could find it on DVD and, and maybe Blu-ray even. I I watched it in HD. It looked great. All that stuff holds up. So, Jason, thank you so much for suggesting this and, and bringing it to our yes. attention. Well, thank you for having me. I've had a good time. Last question. Two questions. Mm. Oh. Favorite movie theater snack that's not popcorn? Hot tamales. Really? Wow. Absolutely. Craig? Uh, uh, that's, that's not popcorn. Uh, 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 you know, <laughs> Jesus, I didn't know this was going to be this big uh, of a decision. And, uh, I'll, I'll just go with Reese's Pieces. Oh, you can't go wrong with Reese's Pieces. I got to tip my hat to my wife who turned me, uh, into a snow caps fan. So if you, snow yeah, caps. and they go really well with the popcorn. So next time, just, just putting that out there. And, uh, Jason, that. last thing. Uh, you, you work in a movie theater. This is 2017. We're about to, to get hit by a bunch of new movies. Uh, anything that you're really looking forward to this year? <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm definitely no, okay. looking forward to, um, <laughs> um, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Yeah. Thor Ragnarok, Star Wars Episode 8. Mm-hmm. Florence Foster Jenkins 2. Yeah, I'm hoping for that one. Yeah, those are three huge movies. I'm sure they will do big business. Yeah, and I hate to be the guy that throws the three obvious choices out there, but I love me some comic book movies, so... There you go. 
There you go. Well, maybe we'll have you back sometime and we'll talk about one. Once again, you can find us online, neverheardpodcast.com. Jason, where can they find your movie theater? What's the website for that? Um, TheLumina, T-H-E-L-U-M-I-N-A dot com. There you go. If you're ever in Chapel Hill, you got to go check it out. Right on. Bye. Okay. (laughs) If there was anything else. (laughs)